Again, I want to repeat and say how much I appreciate the church and the pastor allowing me to come today. Uh, today, I'd like to speak something that is close to my heart. A lot of times we want to sit there and tell everybody they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong. Uh, what I'm going to attempt to do right now is to communicate a perverted message that has been told to the world and give you some tools in order to be more effective witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ when it comes to especially Roman Catholics. Um, I don't do this out of we're right, you're wrong. I want to see friends, relatives, acquaintances, places in the world like the country of Poland come to Christ, but uh, the problem is, is that the terminology has been blurred. And a lot of times it doesn't make sense to them when we talk about receiving Christ or justification or being born again because in their mind it is a, defin- dif- a different definition than what we see in the Word of God. Uh, to make this a little faster... If I could have some volunteers to help me read some verses. I have about 10, 12 verses I'd like to have read. So if that would be possible during uh, the next half an hour, 45 minutes, if I can have some volunteers to read some verses for me. The first one is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Who would do that for me? Thank you. Yes. Uh, Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Thank you. Yes. First uh, Timothy chapter two verses four through five. Thank you. Uh, John chapter three, verses three through six. John chapter three. Thank you, sir. Way in the back. First uh, John three twenty three and twenty four. Thank you. First uh, Corinthians chapter eleven twenty four through twenty six. Pastor, thank you. First uh, John one. 7 through 9. Mrs. Elwood, thank you. And finally, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Anyone? Thank you. for. The, I know you're doubled up then. Uh, the other one is chapter 2, 3, chapter 3, 16 through 17. Yep. Okay. Good. Um, let me start off by giving you an illustration. Um, a camp that you're familiar with. Uh, we had uh, I formed an alliance with a with a uh, another missionary that was there. He was from a uh, he was Polish, called back to the country of Poland uh, from Canada, and uh, we decided to team up to have a, a camp ministry. Over the years, I have had several camps, and uh, uh, and all of them, uh, spiritually speaking, was very successful. We saw several people come to Christ. Um, the uh, last one I had, uh, we had uh, uh, a couple of days before camp, the guy I was working with says, oh, I have a special speaker, which, like, okay, we've been planning camp for six or eight months here, and all of a sudden, the last couple of days before camp, you have a special speaker coming in. So, um, you know, and I, you know, you have to be a peacekeeper, and uh, like I wanted to strangle the guy. But um, uh, he invited this guy from a very well-known ministry here in the United States, an older gentleman. He was from the South, and so he was the guest speaker at night. So one of the things, very quickly, I saw that is that he never spoke uh, to Roman Catholics before, even being teenagers, that the group he was speaking to. So they're listening to him speak, and he's using words like being born again, making a decision for Christ, uh, receiving Christ, justification, sanctification. And the kids are going like, okay, okay, okay. And then it says, okay, you, we, you need to make a decision. And they had no idea what he was talking about. So afterwards, I went to him and says, you know, Dr. So-and-so, I appreciate the sermon, but, you know, these, these kids here, they're not seeing the difference between what you're saying and what uh, the Catholic priest would be saying. And he said, oh, you're accusing me of bad preaching. I said, no, 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 no. I says, says, the terms are different. I mean, the definitions are different. They use the same terms, but the definitions are different. And he, he wouldn't listen. The next night he did the same thing. The kids all looking at him like, what do you want me to do? And went to him again. He, does, he got mad. I mean, we had a, a, a difficult relationship, but the problem was is that there was no decisions for Christ. I've never been, after four or five days, 
being with kids in that situation. I've never seen a situation where we didn't have decisions for Christ in that situation. And the problem was is that what he was saying, he thought 100% in his mind, but in the Polish kids, Polish teenagers, we're hearing a completely different message. And that is the problem. And that's what we need to address here today is that what is the what is some of these definitions? Why do they why when we uh when we uh witness to them we can have so many agreements like have you received Christ? Yeah, absolutely. Are you born again? Absolutely. And you go down through all the terms that we use and then we get done is that both of you are confused. They don't either side is doesn't understand the other one. And that is the problem. So Let's start off with, and I want to start off with the foundation. Let's start off with the foundation on either side. So let me start off with the foundation with the Catholic Church. If you went to their catechism, you can download the catechism um, off the Internet. It's only 600 pages long. So if you like uh, some bedtime reading, you can download that and try to read it. It's very confusing. I find it very contradictory. Uh, your doctrinal statement on your website is how long? Two pages. Yeah, a couple of page two, maybe three, if it's a real long one. You don't want to overwhelm people. Theirs is 600 pages long. I don't even know if the Catholic priests really understand it. So, um, But when you get to catechism, they're numbered. Well, you can look it up 80 through 82. I'm talking about 80 through 82 on the Roman Catholic um, catechism. They say that sacred scripture is the Word of God. Then they say sacred tradition is bound together with sacred scripture. How do they all work together? Well, they're bound together and ultimately they work in conjunction with each other and basically what they're saying is that tradition overrides the Word of God. That's what they're saying in that statement, 80 through 82. You can look that up. You can go on there and just go in Google search and put in catechism, Roman Catholic catechism, uh, numbers 80 through 82, and you can read that. It's a very quick reading. It's only about half a page, all three of them together, about a half a page long, and you'll see that very clearly there, is that the tradition will override the Word of God, and you have to understand that. So when you first start talking to a Catholic, you have to come to a, a starting place, a foundation. And most Catholics will sit there and say, well, is the Word of God? And if you can establish that, then you've got something to start with. But if they go and grab tradition and say tradition is equal with the Word of God, you have a problem. And you have to go and demonstrate to them it's the Word of God is your foundational truth. Now, as believers, what does 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 say? Yes, nice and loud. Okay, so what that's telling us right away as from our side of it is that, number one, God's Word... That is what we believe, and that's our foundation. It's inspired. It's God-breathed. It thoroughly furnished. In other words, it's full and complete. We have the full canon of Scripture here, and we do not need any more. God has given everything that we need to know. So in other words, nothing that we add on to that is any... We cannot go and add to the Word of God. As a matter of fact, Revelation chapter 22, there's great warning against that. And the Bible is full and complete. Now, the man of God is kind of interesting because it's the word anthropos. So, you ladies out there, it's referred to anybody in mankind that is a believer. So, it's not for a special individual. It's not only for your pastor. That is for all those that accept Christ as their personal Savior. The Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16-17, this is the Word of God. It is our guide. It is complete. It fulfills everything that we need to know as Christians. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Thank you. 
Right. Great passage of Scripture. I believe that's one of the best passages of Scripture. Take a Roman Catholic too. Matthew chapter 15, 1 through 9. You want to, might want to mark that right there. Matthew chapter 15, 1 through 9. What is going on there is that the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, come to Christ. And what they're saying is that, why does your disciples violate the tradition of washing their hands before they eat? Now, we have to understand there is not in the Bible a hygiene commandment where you're supposed to wash your hands before you eat. I know your mother, mothers want that, but it's not there. There is uh, some passages dealing with the priest on, uh, on cleansing before a particular ceremonial act, but there is not a commandment that we're supposed to wash our hands before we're eating. And actually what's going on there, it became a religious tradition. It was ceremonialism that they added to the Word of God. And that's what the Pharisees and the uh, scribes and Pharisees are accusing the apostles of, is of breaking the oral law. In other words, a man-made tradition added to it. Now, how God, how Christ responded now is that he pointed to the Ten Commandments honoring your father and your mother because they actually took and twisted that commandment where they put themselves in a position where they didn't have to support mom and dad in their old age. And that's what's going on there. It'd be a great study to go through, but trust me, that's what's going on there is they twisted the Word of God where they did not have to support mom and dad. They did not have to honor their mom and dad in their old age. And that's what's the play going on there. But what's important now is what Christ says. He talks about traditions replacing the commandments of God. And what does it say in verse 9? What is, what, is this, what is it being said there? In vain, without success. Without success. You see, when we put the traditions of man ahead of the Word of God, what is going to happen? The man's heart is going to be far, far away, and our worship is going to be in vain. We have to understand that. When you go and witness to a Roman Catholic, great passage to take them to and demonstrate what does God think about traditions because that's what their theology is built on is man-made traditions adding to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say about that? It's in vain. Third verse, very quickly in the preface here, is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4-5. through 5. Correct. There's one, how many, between God and man? One. Who is that person? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's very foundational when you're talking about the difference between Bible Christianity and Roman Catholicism. We could talk about several of them right at the moment. We could talk about the saints, and I'll get to that. The saints, Mary, they pray to each of those. They venerate those individuals. Veneration means in a Catholic um, is, is that it's an act of worship, but they have different levels. So we venerate God at a higher level than we would the saints or Mary. But there's still a veneration. There is a worship to those individuals. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit, how the saints and Mary all fit into this. So the very foundation that we start with right here is that, number one, is the, the Word of God is the foundation. It is full and complete. It's inspired. That's our foundation. What does God think about tradition? Man-made tradition that changes the Word of God. It is in vain. And then also there is one mediator between God and man. Now, that's our foundation as we start and we see the difference between the two. Tradition is added is where they start from. We say this is foundational. So when you talk to a Roman Catholic, you have to start out at a point where you can sit there and say, okay, what is our foundational truth? And if they say tradition along with the Word of God, the only thing you can do is show them those verses. And right there, you're going to have a struggle trying to witness to a Roman Catholic. The Holy Spirit has to be working. The Holy Spirit has to open their eyes. You've got to allow God to let, you, to let you, Him use you in this whole situation. Our job is to be faithful and witnesses. Our job is not to get people saved. Our job is to be used of God in order for the Holy Spirit to work in their life. And we understand that. So, now... Let's talk about some of the terms and definitions in Roman Catholicism. There's three types of grace. We'll hear that word all the time, grace, 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 grace. Pastor, I'll ask you because I don't want to embarrass anybody. Give us a definition of grace. 
absolutely great. You extended it farther than I would have. Grace, it's God's love towards us. Bottom line. When we accept Christ, He's there with open arms. That's grace. Unmerited. We cannot earn it. We cannot, we cannot work hard enough. We cannot do enough to please Him except submitting our hearts to Him. That is grace. And Roman Catholicism has a different, different, different definition. So this sounds a little confusing. Listen very closely here. So in Roman Catholicism, there's three different types of grace. The first one is called sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace is the substance needed in the soul in order, in order to live in heaven. You have to have sanctifying grace in your soul in order to get into heaven. Everybody follow that. Now, here's how they advertise or explain sanctifying grace. You can go to a couple of different websites. I can go and direct you to a couple of different websites. And they explain sanctifying grace as special equipment. Special equipment. And they illustrate it this way. Yeah, that's why I said I just seen him roll his eyes here. That's why I do all the time on the computer. Like, what? And they believe this? Sanctifying grace is they explain it this way. Imagine going out to the sea. And you jump off the boat and you go down right down to the bottom. What's going to happen to you? I'm sorry? You're going to drown. You're going to die. Why? Because you have no special equipment. And that's how they explain special um, uh, uh, sanctifying grace. You have to have special equipment in order to live in heaven. You have to have specialized equipment in order to live at the bottom of the sea. And that's how they explain sanctifying grace. And we'll define that a little bit more as we go here. But the very first thing is that sanctifying grace is the substance you have to have in order to survive in heaven. The second one's called actual grace. Actual grace. So you've got sanctifying grace, then you have actual grace. Now, let's see. I've never tried to illustrate it, but it's a hard one to get. To. It's a hard one for everybody to understand. Let me pick on you one more time. Come here. Come here. I think illustration is great because it gets the point across. And this is a, this is a little confusing. We've got to go and sort of nail this down with. So here is a picture. Picture this guy right here is a good Roman Catholic. Your mom and dad will strangle you if that happens. So, so here is a, a good Roman Catholic. And what actual grace does is that it, as they teach, you need to go and go to church. You need to go and go and. Uh, 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 do the seven sacraments. You need to go and do good works. You need to be in church. And they explain it this way. It's a, it's a spiritual nudge. And you're being nudged by the Holy Spirit. It's called actual grace. You need to be doing this. You need to be doing this. And that's what they talk about. Actually, it's sort of like the idea of the Holy Spirit working somebody's life, except you don't feel, feel the fingers in the back saying you've got to do it. Like, Mom, sweet, take out the garbage. Um, actual grace. And that's how they explain it. This is what happens in a Roman Catholic's life is that there's a spiritual nudge. Thank you. They explain also the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. He was a good Catholic, as they say. And he had a big spiritual nudge. Is how they explain that thing that happened on the road to Damascus when Paul met the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have, what was the first term? Sanctifying grace. The spiritual nudge is called actual grace. Okay, everybody got that? Okay, there's a third one. The third one is called sacramental grace. Sacramental grace. What is sacramental grace? Sacramental grace is the physical actions that produce the sanctifying grace in a Catholic's life. Okay, let me... How can I explain this better? Um... Sacramental grace produces sanctifying grace, which is infused into the soul. Sacramental grace is only received through the church. We have to understand that. They state uh, salvation is by faith in Christ, but this faith is through the sacraments, which can only be attained through the church by the bishop or the priest. Uh, sacramental grace must be practiced in order to, to maintain the spiritual strength of the soul. If a Roman Catholic fails to maintain sacramental grace, he will ultimately be weakened and have no ability to resist the, uh, committing a mortal sin, what they call a mortal sin versus a venereal sin. Venereal sin is those minor little white lies versus a mortal sin is, like, for example, the Ten Commandments. You violate any of the Ten Commandments. You committed a mortal sin. 
what happens if you commit a mortal sin? You lose all your sanctifying grace. So, um, let me illustrate this. In here, we have sanctifying grace. Okay? Now, how does this... And we'll start with the very first one of the seven sacraments. What is the first sacrament that is practiced in a Roman Catholic's life? I'm sorry? Baptism. So when a baby is baptized, it opens up the soul and produces... told you I'm going to spill this, Pastor. I'm sorry. And produces sanctifying grace in their soul. So if anything happens to that baby, he has sanctifying grace and automatically he will go to maybe, maybe purgatory, maybe. Okay. So this is the first sacrament. Now, let me give some additional terms. See this point why I'm doing this? Anybody have an idea what this is called? Infusion. Infusion means pouring. So, when a Roman Catholic practices the sacraments, the actual grace is telling them to do it, do it, do it. Sacramental grace is the action which produces infused grace and giving sacramental grace or sanctifying grace. I'm sorry, sanctifying grace in the soul. Okay, so a test here real quick. First one. What is the first one I mentioned? Which, uh, what is sanctifying grace? Special equipment. Actual grace is the nudge. I'm glad that's a good illustration. I've got to remember that. Okay, and what's the nudge going to get you to do? What kind of sacramental grace? And the first one is... Infant baptism is the first of the seven sacraments. Now, what happens to a baby? They don't have an official doctrine, but something commonly taught. What happens to a baby that dies before it is baptized? You are the good Catholic, right? Right? Okay, but there's something taught. It's not official, but it was commonly taught. And they said something happened to babies. And John Paul actually, uh, actually, I think it was John Paul that sort of like backtracked on the whole thing. It's called limbo. Anybody heard the term limbo? Limbo. So the, the child would go into limbo. Can you imagine a mother losing her child and say, oh, the baby's in limbo? I couldn't imagine that. But that was what they told people because it doesn't fit into their theology. Because infant baptism is so important because otherwise everything else falls apart. It actually all fits together as you understand Catholicism. It's very accommodating, but there's certain aspects of it all fits together and gives ultimately the power over the church. Now, I just said something a few seconds ago. I want to make sure you, you caught this. Now, where can they get sacramental grace? Who can do it? The priest gets mad at you? You're going to be in trouble? Okay, when I talked earlier about having the control of the minds and the hearts of the people, now do you understand? And then government goes along with it. If you look at history, government goes along with it. Government likes state churches. Why? Because it produces unity and loyalty of the people. Unity and loyalty of the people. So not only is the, the government happy, the Catholic priest gets to teach in the schools there. Why do they do this? Unity and loyalty from a government aspect, power and control over the minds of the population. So it's actually a, a marriage made in hell. You know, you heard the term marriage made in heaven? Definitely not made in heaven, ladies and gentlemen. It's made in hell. And that's what gives that whole idea. When a missionary goes into a culture like that, that's what they are fighting so when we witness to somebody over there and they see, I have a decision to make. It's thinking about turning my back on my family, their traditions, the days of obligation. We could talk about the days of obligation a lot. But I'm being a traitor to my country and to the state church. So it's not like here a lot of times when we open up the Word of God, 
is that somebody gets saved, your, your mom and dad might not talk to you for a few weeks. There, it's like, tear my clothes and never talk to you again. It's like death and you turn your back on your country. That's sort of the idea they have going on there. And one of the challenges that we have, missionaries have around the world. That's the culture that I work in. So it is, can be very challenging and very tough. And we always pray that, you know, that the Holy Spirit is working and God will give me the right words, put me in contact with the right people, myself, my family, my coworkers, the believers that are over there. That's how you need to pray. Okay, so we have the first sacrament is infant baptism. The second sacrament is um, uh, confirmation. Confirmation. I'm going to pick on you because you said you're Catholic. I'm sorry. Confirmation. What is confirmation? Okay. Okay. Actually, confirmation is you're being confirmed into the Catholic Church, uh, and uh, you actually uh, also what they teach is that uh, at that point in time is that you have the Holy Spirit uh, gives you the Holy Spirit at that point in time as a Catholic. It also gives you additional sanctifying grace. The Church quotes uh, only a few verses in the Bible, but then they quote twelve different Church fathers, and they actually take it out of context. Uh, and counsels to justify this practice. And I, I, I missed a verse, so I want to do two verses together. So after saying that, let me jump back to infant baptism. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. John chapter 3, 3 through 6. Let me just make a point there back up a little bit. Who is supposed to read that? John chapter 3, 3 through 6. Okay, very good. And that's, is that all of it? A little bit more. Okay, you said something very interesting in that one part. You must be born of water. Okay, uh, when you're infant baptized in the Catholic Church, you're being born of water, being born again. That's where the term comes from. And that's how come they use it is that, oh yeah, you're born again, John chapter 3. And they'll quote that verse. And of course, when you look at that passage, the passage there is an illustration between physical birth and spiritual birth. How many times were you born? One time. Do you have children? What happens whenever a baby's about ready to come? Pain, but there's something else? Water breaks. I remember my wife, she's two weeks late on her first child, one, three o'clock in the morning, never, never during the day, and it was a flood in the bed. Okay? That's what's being talked about there, and what is being illustrated there is the physical birth, just like you're born physically, you need to be born spiritually. I'm sorry, Pastor. I told you that was going to happen. Thank you for doing that. I always feel guilty about that. Thank you. Okay. So, that's where they get the idea. and say They point to John chapter 3. It says, oh yeah, we believe in being born again. So when you have that, that's what they're talking about there. Okay, now let's get back to confirmation very quickly. It's being confirmed in the Catholic Church. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes on you and makes you a strong Catholic or starts your life as a strong Catholic. In response to that, we have to look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 23 through 24. Whoever has that, please read it loud. Okay, we have to understand is that the idea of belief, and I'll go and get a little technical in Greek here, it's an error subjunctive. Error subjunctive. What does that mean? I like to say that I, I had 15, uh, 15 uh, credits of uh, New Testament Greek. I didn't take Greek. Greek took me. I don't know if you had the same problem. You see why I didn't take Hebrew. Um, 
But the air subjunctive, it says we should. People should, and the idea there is that we should accept. That's the whole idea there. Those that have accepted, and there's a mood of possibility there. If we have accepted Christ as our personal Savior, and we should be doing that, what is the result? Is that there's love for the brethren and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't address it in that passage, but we see it in other passages there. The point is, though, what's being said here is, is that it doesn't take confirmation at the church. It is the act of what goes on spiritually when we accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Now, how old are you? Okay, you're too old. Do we have any 12, 11, 12 years? How old are you? Eight. Okay, he's almost old enough. Okay, if you're in the Polish culture or the American culture, this is what's going to happen. Do you like parties? Do you like parties? Do you like presents? Do you like dressing up for parties and presents and have everybody come over to your house? Yeah, I do too. I, I would like to do that. Okay, confirmation. This is what all their whole life they're preparing for this, all the way up to his age, just a little older than that is that you're going to be confirmed in the Catholic Church. And guess what? You get to wear this all-white outfit. Can you imagine a boy with an all-white outfit? Oh. It says IHS on the thing in the great big diamond, in his holy service. That's what it stands for. They even use the acronym in English on their Polish outfits. All dressed in white. Okay? And the priest is going to go and give you your first communion, and he's going to go and throw some water on you, the priest or the bishop. This is part of another sacrament. And guess what? Afterwards, you're going to have a special party. Everybody's going to come to your house. Over there, they even give out computers, even that poor culture, as a present to the kids. I mean, it's a big deal. And they have a great big celebration. Now, you tell me, how many kids that say, no, I don't want to be confirmed? Okay? And it's sort of like, enjoy the ride, guys. You're baptized as an infant. You're part of the Catholic Church. Now we're going to confirm you. You have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's going to make you a strong Catholic. It's going to give you some more sanctifying grace. So right away, by the time before they even hit puberty, or real close now, they've already done two of the sacraments. So it is a nice, easy religion that way. Okay, so we have to understand that. Okay, that's the first two. Third one, the third one is the Holy Eucharist. The Holy Eucharist. Now, infant baptism, by the way, let me just repeat this. Uh, that, that, uh, uh, that one can only be done once, obviously. Confirmation is only done once. But the Holy Eucharist is done as many times as possible. As many times as possible. Um, the wafer and the wine are the focus of the Mass. The wafer and the wine is the focus of the Mass. So, in other words, when you go to the Catholic service, you always hear, you never hear service, you always hear the Mass. What is the Mass? The sacrificing of Jesus Christ. The sacrificing of Jesus Christ. How many times does Christ die for us? Once. Not at the Mass. The Mass is a propitiation offering of the crucifixion of Christ and the consumption of his body and blood that gives you that sanctifying grace in your soul. So in other words, you are sanct- you're killing Christ, you're killing Christ, you're killing Christ and consuming over and over and over again, which produces sanctifying grace in your soul. That's what's going on at every single Mass that takes place around the world several times a week. Do you think we need missionaries? Clarifying the message? I believe so. That is what's going on at the church, probably right down the street from here. I can stand in one spot in Boknia, and I can see three different Catholic churches. And they build them because it's based upon the population in a particular area. It's based upon the parish. In other words, as soon as I move into an area, I'm a member of the Catholic church if I was baptized into that church. And that's where I go to. That's how it works there. They tried that in America, but you got some people that don't like all the Catholic priests here and they go to different buildings. Yeah. So, so what do we teach? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 24 through 26.
you've done that a few times. I can tell why you read that. It's like once a month. Now, I always use that passage. I always get stuck on using that one over and over again. But what is it? Is it anything about sanctifying grace? It's a remembrance. As Christians, we stop our life and we meditate on what Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago and then ask ourselves, what kind of Christian am I? What kind of Christian Christian am I today? How has been my life been? That's what the Lord's Supper table is all about. It's a remembrance. It's like that statue you built. Remember World War II. This is ours in the local church. It's the remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Let me ask you a hard question. I've used three terms: actual grace, sanctifying grace, and sacramental grace. Does, are those in the Word of God at all? Sanctifying is, grace is, but you'll never see them put together. You'll never see those terms in the Word of God, and you have to remember that. Good starting point. Where, where's this in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. So the third one is the Holy Eucharist. So that's what's going on in the Mass. And like I said, you can do that as often as you want. You always wonder why those old ladies dress, dress in black, those old Catholics, they start going to the Mass every single day. My in-laws go to the Mass three, four times a week now. They're 79 years old. They're, they're entering that stage where they have health problems. And they're very active. And they probably couldn't explain why, but they know they need to be doing this. And that's what's going on in the Catholic's life. Um, the fourth one is called penance. Penance. What is penance? Mm-hmm. Yes, I give you an A plus on that too, by the way. Okay, let me give you add a little bit more to that. Okay, um, the, it's actually the confession. What you have to do is you're going to go and confess your sins. Okay, um, the church quotes that forgiveness of sins were granted to the apostles. And then they believe in apostolic succession. What I mean by apostolic succession is that every generation after that you had apostles, which are the priests of the day. And so the priests can absolve you of the, uh, of the uh, sin. You might still have the liability of the sin, but you're forgiven of the sin. Did you catch that? Okay, it's like a car accident. They, the person that you hit forgives you for the accident, but you still got to pay for his car. That's what, basically what they're saying there. A little strange there. Um, um, they quote many verses. They quote the apocryphal books. The apocryphal books were added at the Council of Trent from 1545 to 1563. We could talk about that for a while. But they added to the Word of God. Um, and then historical practices of oral confessions also on there. Now, if you commit a mortal sin, what happens in a mortal sin? Anybody have an idea? I did not honor mom or dad. I stole. I did not honor God. What happens to your sanctifying grace? That's like when they call it a mortal sin. You lose it. This is what happens. The only way you can get it back is going to the confessional and confessing that mortal sin to a priest. And at that time then, then you can start your sacramental grace again and have it back added. You start back working at it. If you don't, is that you're in danger like the mortal, mortal sin. You can go to hell because you have a mortal sin that's unconfessed in a Catholic's life. So the confessional, they have to go to the priest or the bishop in order to confess that sin to then be infused with sanctifying grace. And sanctifying grace, what they want to do is continue to have that added that makes them a strong Catholic. Now, the other sin is what? What's the other one? Mortal sin and venial. Venial. I, you know, for some reason I'm stuck. I'm, I'm sorry. I was never a Catholic. My wife, my former Catholic wife always corrects me on that. Venial sin. Thank you on that. Uh, those are the, the white lies. Now, you don't lose this, but it's started being watered down, so to speak. You become weak. 
And if you become weak, then it puts you in danger of being or doing a mortal sin. So they said, they say is that you need to keep on practicing over and over again. That's where the spiritual nudge comes in all the time. You need to practice. You need to practice the uh, seven sacraments or the sacraments in order to keep the sanctifying grace strong. So, how many is that for? You guys got to keep me straight. Okay, that was penance. That was number four. Uh, let's read First John one seven through nine. Okay, can you tell me where it talks about going to the confessional and confessing to a priest or or a uh, or a uh, or a bishop? You see that in there anywhere? It's not. Okay, this is the problem, and they misquote and take verses out of context in order to justify their action or their system that you have to go to a confessional in order to receive sanctifying grace or get forgiven of a mortal sin to start your sanctifying grace again. That was number four. Number five, it's called extreme unction. Extreme unction. I'll give you an A plus if you know this one. What is extreme unction? Uh, yes, it does. But that gives it away then. I wanted to make it hard on you. Uh, what do you do if you're going to go in surgery or you're on your deathbed? Last rites. That's another term for it. They love these fancy terms. Extreme unction. Extreme unction is the the uh, fifth one. And extreme unction is the last rites that prepares you for death. So today, uh, if you're going to go into surgery, you have last rites performed. It gives you the last little bit of sac- sancti- um, the sacramental grace, which stringent the sanctifying grace in your soul to help you along into heaven. Um, uh, and again, it, the only people that can give it to you is the priest or the bishop. Uh, first, John, uh, first, excuse me, First Timothy chapter three, verses one through seven. Uh, uh, well, excuse me, I'm sorry, I didn't have a verse for that one. A couple seconds, we'll get to the seventh sacrament. That'll be the seventh sacrament. Okay, that's number. Um, that was number five. Number six is called. Holy orders. Holy orders. Holy orders is given once to a male uh, in the Catholic Church. Holy orders is the idea of that you need to be a priest. Strange when I look at the Bible is that the Bible teaches that each one of us are a priest before God. When we accept the Lord Jesus Christ, we become a priest. Why can we go and close our eyes and you don't even have to close your eyes? We just start speaking to God. Does God hear our prayers? Absolutely. In Roman Catholicism, you have to go to the priest. You have to ask him to pray for you. You ever hear of somebody saying having a mass said for themselves? Have you heard that term before? Okay. And guess what? You're put on the list and the priest is going to say mass because he's not going to hear your prayer. We're going to have a special mass said for you. And it's not just for you. They can have a whole list of people. There And this Mass is said, and they'll name off those people. And why do they do that? How do you get them to say Mass for you? I'm glad you said that. I didn't say that. You see what she did? Can you do that one more time? Vow of poverty. We won't talk about any of that anymore. Okay. So, um, that was uh, Holy Orders. Number seven. That was number six. Number seven. We want First Timothy three one through seven. Why don't you read that first? We'll change order a little bit here.
Okay. That's number seven. Well, I'll, I'll put that on six and seven because it's that verse I went and have for both. That's why I always get confused there on it. Um, holy orders. Now, calling somebody to be a priest, you have to be not married. You have to be without blame. You have to have a good reputation. Does your pastor meet all that criteria? As far as I know, he does. Yeah. You have children? You're married to this woman? Okay. Catholic Church, you can't, be a, you can't do that. You're wrong. Funny thing is the Word of God says just the opposite. I know some people says you can't be a, a, a pastor without being married. Um, so you go that far. I'm not going to get into that. But... That's what the Word of God says. What they're saying is, is that to be, to be a priest, you can't be married. And there's reasons for that historically, because if the, something happens to the priest, they don't have to take care of the family afterwards. No financial obligation to the church afterwards. We have to understand that. Also, we have to understand that, um, uh, that the seventh sacrament is holy matrimony. Matrimony. Uh, only being married once, unless the spouse dies, what they, they teach there. He unites a couple in Christian marriage and gives them the grace they need to obey God in the marriage. Also commands to have as many children as possible. Why do they do that? It's for future church membership. They're baptized and they're brought up in the Catholic Church. So it builds their church. There's over a billion um, uh, Catholics in the world today. That's amazing to me. Over a billion and today, the Catholics can open up the Word of God and read it. But they're not doing that. They are fooled by the church, deceived by the church. Now, saying all that is that, let me illustrate something here. My uh, brother, my older brother, was fell in love with a good Catholic girl, and she demanded that they get married in the Catholic church, one in, not too far from here, Utica, Michigan. Everybody know where Utica is at? Okay. And uh, I was at work talking about going to this wedding. I was not uh, real faithful in my church at that time. I was in my early 20s and talking about that. And one of the guys went to that parish there. He said, oh, Father Stam, he's going to marry him. And you know what they said about Father Stam? We look at the Word of God, but you know what they said about Father Stam? You know what he was famous for? He could pour down those beers. That's what he was famous for. They even have special places for priests with alcoholism. That's how bad of a problem they have in the Catholic Church. You know that wine in the Mass? Can they pour that down the drain? No. It's the, it's the blood of Christ. You can't do that. Somebody's got to drink it. They have, a, they have a problem with alcoholism in the clergy in the Catholic Church. So those are your seven sacraments. And now let's test you again. What do you need in the soul? To get into heaven? Sanctifying grace. The spiritual nudge is called actual grace and it's achieved through sacramental grace. Okay? And it's done by its infusion. Okay. Now, those, that is the basic part. Now, let me just take a little longer here and explain a couple other things to you. Now, all these sacraments only come through a priest or a bishop. A priest or a bishop. In other words, the church is there as a conduit in order for you to reach Christ in faith. So when you say, have you received Christ this week? Yeah, I went to Mass. I received Christ. Okay, receiving Christ. Have you been born again? Yeah, I've been born again. They won't say, but they tell them that. Yeah, they're born again. John chapter 3. Were you saved? This is their definition of saved. Yeah, I was up on a ladder and I fell off the ladder. I missed a rock by that close. And God saved me. So you might have got saved. How many people have had a close call in life? We all have. Close call. You got saved. This is the terminology. You see the problem when you start witnessing to a Roman Catholic how these terms all work together? Sanctifying grace, born again, that's the challenge. Now, for you, now you understand a little bit more where you can go step back and say, okay, we have to redefine terms when we talk to a Roman Catholic. Okay, um, let me touch on a couple other things very quickly here. Uh, obviously, the control. But the third thing here is I want us to see is 
uh, praying and petitions. A lot of people see um, that um, that uh, Catholics pray to Mary or the saints. And the question is, why? Why do they pray to Mary and the saints? Um, the saints and Mary are highly favored so they can bring your prayers to God. In other words, the idea is that, well, if I pray to Mary, Mary's the mother of God, and do you listen to your mother? Yeah. Okay? If mom says so, you're going to do it. You know, get away with sometimes the dad not listen, but mom, no, you've got to listen to mom. That's the idea is that Mary is favored and says, okay, we'll go to Mary. We'll have, an, we'll have an intermediator between me and Jesus Christ. And that's the idea is that if you pray to Mary, if you take your prayers to Mary, you're going to find favor with Mary and you can go and she can come to Christ. They have not made it an official doctrine, but it's very commonly accepted that she is the co-mediator. That's the level she's at. She's equal with Christ because she's the mother of God. She, when she died, she was raptured basically into heaven. They even celebrate the, um, the uh, Ascension of Mary in the Catholic Church. There's actually 19 holidays. And all you have to do is go to Mass and you get the rest of the day off. Can you imagine having 19 holidays? they give you 19 holidays here at the church? Okay. And you get paid for it and you get the day off. A good Roman Catholic's got 19 days of obligation. They have to go to Mass. One of them is Christmas, Easter, but they have like three Kings Day. Okay, when the three kings came and brought those gifts to Christ. Now, does it say it's king? Does it say he was? It was kings? Nope. Did it say there was three of them? Nope. There was three gifts, but they even have names for the three kings, by the way, and they have a day of celebration. They even celebrate it with a bunt cake, and they put a special coin in it, and whoever finds the coin will get a special crown to wear that day. This is some of the things they have in Roman Catholicism, and there's 19 of those days. We have to understand that. But getting back to the prayers to saint, um, uh, the idea also is uh, praying petition is to um, um, uh, having a mass said for a departed loved one. Um, and I should I'm going to get that in the next point. Let me go back to the saints now. Uh, a saint is who, according to the Bible? Absolutely, Romans Romans. Go look at Romans chapter 1. To the saints at Rome. Were they dead? Does anybody read letters that are dead? No, of course not. Okay? When we accept Christ as a Savior, you're a saint. Believe it or not, your husband is a saint. I know it's hard to believe, but he's a saint. Okay? Sanctified. Set apart is basically what God is saying there. In Roman Catholicism, that's not what it's talking about there. A saint is somebody that can intercede between you and God. So what they do is that somebody is put in a position they believe should be a saint, like John Paul. He was put on the fast track. They never did this in history before. John Paul was a very favored individual. He's from my area of Poland, so his statue is everywhere. But when John Paul died, they wanted him to be a saint. So there's some nuns in France. One of the nuns in this cloister, they call it a cloister. I don't know where they get that word at, cloister. And one of them was diagnosed with um, MS. And they decided that they would pray to John Paul and not Jesus Christ. And her and her cloister sisters started praying. And next time she went to the doctor, no disease. She was cured. It was a miracle. So they said, oh, John Paul must be a saint. They're praying to him, and here's the proof. They do an extension, extensive background check to make sure there's no skeletons in the closet, but they verify at least one miracle. From that time, then until they made him a saint, then another miracle took place. A lady, I believe, was down in Peru, somewhere down there in South America. Uh, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And one night she went to bed and she had this dream. And she dreamed that John Paul was there. And when she woke up in the morning, there was a magazine laying on the counter with John Paul with his outreach arms. And, and when she went to the doctor, they said, oh, there's no tumor. So the two miracles were fulfilled, and they made John Paul a saint in the church. That's how come they pray to Mary and the saints, because they intercede to Christ. Apparently Christ is too busy to listen to you. 
Besides, you've got to go to a priest anyways to get Christ to hear from you. That's what's going on there. That's how come they have them going to the priest. Real quickly, another thing that's kind of wild. There's a verse in Acts, if I'm not mistaken. It talks about Paul's cloak. Um, and uh, one little verse is isolated. And it talks about the healing power that happened with John's, Paul's cloak. You recall that verse there. So you know, you know I'm not crazy. Okay? So... They believe that every altar in the Catholic Church should have, and they call it a relic. In other words, they're talking about a piece of the body of a saint in every altar. Now, the last few years have had trouble doing that. But they believe that a piece of the relic should be in every altar. And they have a whole procedure to embed that piece into the altar because it believes that it has physical healing powers. I was in Zamush, Poland. My wife's family is from Zamush, Poland. Tina and I went and visited that. It's about three hours away from where we lived. And I'm looking around in the Zamush church. It is impressive. And they have all these side altars. I looked in one, and I can show you pictures. I have it on my iPad if I have it with me. Is The altar is covered with these little caskets all over it, and it's filled with human bones. The idea of the mysti- mystical healing power of the altar in the Catholic church. Now, that is why there's saints to the um, saints... Um, in the Catholic Church. Now, uh, hang in there just a few more minutes. I'll try to get done with this. Uh, you've heard also of purgatory. Purgatory is not a real big thing here in America, is it, for Catholics? It is part It's Catholic doctrine. Purgatory means the purging of the souls. Every Catholic has unconfessed sin. Every Catholic has unconfessed sin. People forget. They forget they sinned. And so when they go to the priest, you have a problem. So every Catholic has to go to purgatory in order to be purged, in order to go into heaven, because you can't go into heaven with unconfessed sins. That's how come you have purgatory. Uh, what I could tell, about ninth to 10th century, this came into place. By the time we get to the Reformation, why did Martin Luther react? Because it was indulgences. Why do we have Reformation Day? Anybody know when Reformation Day is? Huh? October 31st, number what else is it called? All Hallows Eve, which is also called All Saints Day and All Souls Day. Big holiday. Big, big holiday. Everybody goes to the grave. Everybody's lighting candles. Everybody is having mass said for the relatives and bringing flowers. What are they doing? You watch the video today. What are they doing? They're actually helping that, that, that grace in order to get their relatives out of purgatory into heaven quicker. So not only do they get them in life, but they get them afterwards with the relatives. Help, help, help Uncle Stanislav get out of purgatory. He was a bad guy. Got to get him out of purgatory. So they will do things on All Souls Day, All Saints Day. Now, you ever wonder where they get the um, sanctifying grace to get them out? Where does the sanctifying grace come from? Okay, how about the ones in purgatory? Okay, they have, well, that too. <laughs> She's making the sign of the money. Uh, they have the treasury of merit. The treasury of merit. I mean, it gets this bizarre after a while. The treasury of merit. The treasury of merit is filled up with extra grace. Extra grace. Where did it come from? Well, John Paul, he led a sin, sinless life. He had extra. And it goes into the treasury of matter. All the saints marry the works of Christ. So the church has this, and that's how come they can go and guarantee you're going to get sanctifying grace if you practice and you do these things through the Catholic Church because of the treasury of merit. How about Mother Teresa? All she did was good, good, good. So she had extra grace in order to put it into the treasury of merit. So when we do things during purgatory, that's where that extra sanctifying grace comes from, the treasury of merit in the Catholic Church. Now, after saying all that, and there's some things I'd love to talk about, but I see I'm starting to lose everybody here. Let me ask you the question again. Do we need missionaries in Royal Michigan? Absolutely. The reason being is that the simple plan of salvation has been confused 
by man-made traditions. And we saw in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9, in vain, in vain they do worship me. Do we need missionaries in Eastern Europe? Absolutely. Do we need missionaries in India? Absolutely. Religion has made things complicated. Ladies and gentlemen, we are ambassadors for Christ. What a wonderful name your church has. Because that is our duty, our obligation, what we need to do out of love for our Lord and Savior. I thank you for your patience. I hope I gave you something that you can use witnessing this week to somebody that you care about. I have Frank and Val. I'll be talking to, again, my in-laws. I'll be staying a few days with them next week. Pray for Bob McKinney. Pray for God will open up the door that I can explain the gospel again to them and they will open their ears and listen.